Hello and welcome to episode number 284 of the Armin Show podcast, where we are in suit season. Kidding. For no reason, but I like them at times, and we switch things up. On this episode here, I have an author. I like one word book titles. This one is called Cured. This is from last year. We will also be talking about the current moment. It is The Life-Changing Science of Spontaneous Healing by Dr. Jeffrey Rediger. Welcome to the show. Thank you. I'm glad to have you on here. You are an MD. You are currently in a hospital speaking with me. What hospital is this and how long this have is, you been there? This is McLean Hospital in Boston. I have been here as medical director now for 18 years. Now, what does a medical director do at a hospital? So I'm medical director for a division of McLean Hospital, which is a large, it's the oldest psychiatric hospital in the country. And so my responsibilities are administrative, clinical, teaching. I have a variety of responsibilities. Uh, it's a teaching hospital. So we have a lot of trainees here, um, residents, uh, trainees in social work, psychology, nursing, um, physicians who are doing their uh, training in psychiatry. Etc. Now, psychiatry has that always been your main category of value provision? Yes. Yeah, I finished medical school in 1997 and then I specialized in psychiatry. You do a year of internal medicine and neurology and then three years of training in psychiatry. And I finished that training uh, in the early 2000s. What are some of the main things that separate? you in your path where you wouldn't go into psychology or some sort of other medical field, what geared you into psychiatry specifically if you have pinned it down over time? Yeah, I, I think um, I've long been interested in the human body. I think the human body is fascinating. I'm also interested in the mind. I'm interested, uh, people's stories fascinate me. And so I think the relationship between people's stories and what's going on in their minds and their physical bodies has long been something that's fascinating to me. I have a Master of Divinity from uh, Princeton Seminary in Theology and Philosophy of Science from before medical school. And so I'm also very interested in, uh, in the deeper reaches and meaning of who we are and how we understand our value as human beings. Before I return back to psychiatry, that is a key point. We as human beings have a certain amount of value that we see. Do you look at it in terms of what a person does? Like I've separated sometimes life into being, having, and doing. And right. being is like the ultimate. And then uh, doing is close to as good, but you have to frantically be doing all the time just to feel a little bit of being. And then having is you just get the smallest feeling of being for just when you, let's say, buy a new thing or something, but it just drifts away. Yeah. What do you attribute our value as people to? Yeah, I mean, it's a really a big set of questions you're raising. I, I think in the United States, we tend to value doing a lot. And so sometimes people uh, even, I think, are raised thinking of, of themselves as human doings rather than human beings. But I think the truth is our value doesn't come from what we do. I think the deeper reality um, that has to do with healing and growth has to do with coming to realize and see that our value comes from simply the fact that we're here, that we are human beings. I think every human being brings something unrepeatable and good into the world. 
and we suffer to the exact degree that we don't realize that. And so I don't care if a person is sitting on a street corner drunk for the rest of their life, they still bring something unrepeatable and good into the world. The only issue is that they don't realize that yet. And so they live dejected and feeling a need to drink instead of wake up to the value and dignity of who they are. So I think the truth, that story, is a universal human story for all of us, whether it's someone who struggles with alcohol or with uh, depression or anxiety or with even a difficult medical illness or, or just someone who's trying to get through their life every day and trying to figure out where their value comes from. Um, I think there's a lot of people who do really believe that our value comes from what we do and from being good enough and people suffer from not feeling good enough and they compare themselves to others in a way that isn't fair to themselves, but they they rate themselves lower and then they live with this dejected feeling. And the truth is we all bring something valuable and important into the world, but it comes from our being, from being here, not from something we do. Yes. We can only race towards something that we are running from when we put it aside as separated. You kind of remind me of Dr. Gail Brenner. She's a psychologist that once had on the show. And talks about how separation is a illusion that messes you up. It, you, you disconnect yourself from reality and then now you have no choice but to feel pain. Kind of like right. if you don't see yourself as a repeatable, unrepeatable item, like there's only one arm in at this moment wearing a suit for who knows why. And Dr. <laughs> Jeffrey Redeker, MD at the moment, though later there may be a similar kind of person in some form, it wasn't us at that time, Yes. We're a part of the whole story. To miss that is to then go straight into pain because now you're discounting yourself. Yeah. I mean, it's a really big issue. Um, you know, I've been studying these people with medical evidence for recovery from incurable illnesses. And they're really the superheroes of health and well-being because they got better after their doctors told them that they were going to die. And so I've been studying these factors for 17 years about how these people got better. And it is truly fascinating. And one of the things that they learned along the way is that they learned that their value is something that's that's just unquestionable in there. One of the things that um, I've come to understand is that our value from listening to them for so many years is that we already, it's not like we need to improve or become better or work harder or, um, or that sort of thing. It's that we already are whole and complete already. And the point is to wake up to who we are in that sense. And so it's not like, see, Western psychology, Western theology often teaches that you need to add something to who you are, that there's some deficit that needs to be repaired whether it's through the uh, theology of original sin or needing um, Christ to step in and to uh, give you something that you don't have within you. I think the deeper spirituality the, and even deeper Christianity as it was originally taught is that there's already something whole and complete within us. And the point is to wake up to that. It's not that we need something extra to make us whole and complete. It's a very different way of living. Yes, it comes from you're already there first and yeah. then building off of that versus there's some error. Right. It's not like there's something wrong with you that you need something extra, whether it's a medication or a, an external 
religious figure. It's waking up to who you are. Mm -hmm. Now you had mentioned how a lot of individuals have spontaneously healed and it was surprising to doctors of some form. Yeah. Why did you select this category of, we'll call it medicine, but healing in a form to speak about, did you start noticing it that doctors were not fully aware of what was happening or what was yeah. happening? Yeah, I, there's several different ways I could answer that. Um, the most immediate way I could answer that was that in 2002, an oncology nurse at Mass General came to me and asked for my help in explaining to her son that she had just been diagnosed with pancreatic cancer and told that she had a few months to live. Um, I did that uh, with her and her son, but then she went off to a healing center in Brazil and began contacting me saying that she was seeing some amazing healings and she hoped I would look into it. And she thought that I would be particularly a good person to look into it since I'm both a physician and have this theological training. And I said, no, I doubted that anything real was going on down there. And so Nikki was persistent. She began having people call me from around the country and elsewhere saying they had medical evidence for their recoveries. Did I want to hear their stories? And I continued to say no. I was a new young medical director and faculty at Harvard and busy and didn't think that um, uh, anything likely was going on. But as uh, people began to mail in their medical reports and their stories to me, most of the stories and most of the medical evidence had an explanation that I could um, could possibly rationalize. You know, they had chemotherapy or they'd had some kind of treatment that potentially could explain maybe how they got better. But I couldn't answer fully the questions that they were raising. But there was a few reports that came to me that that didn't have any good explanation, according to all of my medical training, that uh, they had clearly gotten better and the medical evidence proved that they had, but I couldn't see a good explanation for how they got better. And so eventually, the long and short of it is, I did begin to do research in this area. I began to collect med medical evidence for people who uh, had been accurate diagnosed with incurable illness and began to interview them to figure out what they had done. So I had three very strict criteria. I was very rigorous about how I went about this. I told people I would not look at their stories unless they had a genuinely incurable illness according to all that we currently understand. So that meant I looked at the worst kinds of illness, the pancreatic cancers, the worst kinds of brain cancer, glioblastoma multiform, um, idiopathic pulmonary fibrosis, um, ankylosing spondylitis. I mean, I looked only at illnesses that we don't have a known cure for. And and so the second criteria I followed was there had to be really accurate uh, evidence. They had to have been diagnosed accurately, and there had to be clear evidence for recovery. And mm -hmm. then the third criteria was there couldn't be some complicating factor that like chemotherapy or something that could potentially explain how they got better, some kind of experimental treatment. So that's, that's uh, for the last 17 years, that's the criteria I followed. And it's changed me professionally and personally a lot to uh, see that it wasn't the doctors and medications that got these people better. They really implemented some factors of well-being deeply into their lives that changed their trajectory uh, in a way I would not have expected. How much of this comes from the idea that the body does a lot of taking care of itself on its own? Through yeah, that's a big factor. Leaders? 
I mean, I think, I think what's true is the body wants to heal. When we cut ourselves, as long as we have taken enough care of our immune systems, that cut is going to heal. Our bodies want to heal. And I just simply have come to realize that we need to do a lot better job of setting the conditions so that healing can occur. So I don't think we can heal ourselves, but I think we can do a lot more than we do to set up the conditions so that we have really robust immune systems so that we unleash the superpowers of the immune system and so the, the conditions are set so that our, our beautiful immune system cells can do their job crisply and efficiently. And the way a lot of us live our lives, our immune systems are, are functioning inefficiently and sometimes incorrectly. And so there's a lot that can be done. One thing that had come up in your book is the concept of placebos. How important are placebos in order to show that you would have healed anyway in some scenario versus being treated with a medication or something? Yeah, that's a good question. Placebos is a big topic, and there's a lot of research going on in that area, and we're going to continue learning a lot. It's fascinating to me that that uh, placebo effect is very real, uh, can range. It's often thought to be about 30, 35% of um, the time very effective in any kind of experiment. Uh, but uh, that placebo response can range from 10% to 90% in terms of the efficacy for any particular treatment. So it's a massive understudied phenomenon that we're just beginning to wade into. From my standpoint, um, a placebo, whether we call this placebo or spontaneous remission or spiritual healing or a miracle, all of these terms are black boxes that we've never used science to adequately unpack and understand. So a placebo response has a lot packed into that one word, has belief, the power of belief to heal yourself, um, the uh, expectation um, of what it means that it's a doctor that's asking you to take this treatment uh, and the effect of that authority on your psyche. There's lots of factors that play into what makes a placebo response effective. Even the kindness of the doctor plays a role in terms of the um, positive effect of the treatment on your psyche. So lots of factors play into what makes a placebo response very powerful. And I'm just, I think it's great that we now finally are tiptoeing into that big black box of placebo effect to begin unpacking it scientifically and understand just how powerful the mind is. One thing I like is that with a lot of treatments, they are, this is the problem, this is the solution, this is the problem, the solution. There's not much nuance to it. And right. so it doesn't have room to adapt to maybe this was a better way to do things, or maybe it's not about this. It's more the person's internal well-being or something right. else separate. So one thing I like about your content is that it includes more nuance, which I'm seeing more of than, let's say, what I would assume three decades ago included, uh, which takes people more into account. How do you feel about nuance in caring or treatment of people? Well, yeah, I, I believe that every healing event that I've seen, every person I've studied who gets better, it's there's certainly common factors across these many illnesses that I've studied that's associated with their recoveries, but it's also not a one-size-fits-all. Every person had their own unique trajectory. Every person made their unique 
uh, decisions around nutrition, for example, and they had to make very unique decisions around um, how to manage their particular stressful situations and bring down their fight or flight stress response, for example. They had to make very individual decisions around how to, around what it meant to heal the immune system for them. Uh, but so it's not a one size fits all. And I think going into these stories very deeply and seeing the unique ways each person did it, that's what's inspiring for people is to see these stories and say, well, if that person can do that, well, maybe I can do this. And they adapt those factors to their own life, but in a unique way. And so I think that's the future of medicine is not these um, big randomized studies that uh, just look at the what the average person does and groups everything around the mean. But I think the future is to look at a more personalized approach where we look at this particular situation, this particular person with all of their own unique stressors and unique opportunities, and then help make the most of that. Mm -hmm. I think yeah, that's the future. Detail-oriented to the person or the people. Yeah, and I think technology is going to drive that because more and more we have apps on our smartphones that will increasingly help us take responsibility for our health. We can now monitor our heart rates. We can monitor our heart rate variability. We can monitor more and more all kinds of data immediately. And I, it's not going to be that long before we'll be able to even monitor the electrolyte and mineral response to the food we had earlier to that day. And so we'll start to see more and more uh, opportunities to take responsibility for our health and calibrate to our unique situation, which is very different than uh, a randomized study and what the average person did, which they might be college students and may or may not re apply at all to your real life where you have kids or um, sitting in uh, rush hour every day and doing living a really different life with a very different physiology mm -hmm. there's like pockets of different groups of people and if they all yeah. look at this exact example of what a randomized averaging is then we have no way to specialize to our form right yeah there might be some help in that but it might not be helpful at all and so i think the future is more of a personalized approach mm -hmm. now one thing that just came to mind is as a director at your hospital, you have a good sense of the broad nature of your hospital. What are some of the uh, most skilled abilities that come from your hospital specifically? Is there any certain categories that you guys are great at? Well, uh, in regards to McLean Hospital, uh, McLean Hospital is uh, the oldest psychiatric hospital in the country. It's um, uh, one of the old Harvard hospitals. Uh, and it's a wonderful place in many ways. It has all of its strengths and weaknesses. I think that um, modern Western uh, medical care is brilliant in some ways. It's really good um, at saving lives in, with the acute stress. And that's true whether you come to McLean Hospital, which is a psychiatric hospital that deals with bipolar disorder, anxiety, depression, substance abuse, schizophrenia, and that sort of thing. Uh, it's also um, just like McLean, when a person comes into the emergency room or goes into the acute care medical hospital, uh, Western medicine is brilliant at fixing the acute presenting problem. What we're not so good at is healing people 
is healing people long-term so that they don't need the re repeated hospitalizations or a long history of medications. Medications, in my view, whether psychiatric or medical, uh, is um, treat symptoms rather than causes. So, and I, I can say this um, with some deep understanding. I'm medical director here at McLean uh, at this branch and also uh, until recently for many years, for 12 years, I was also the chief of behavioral medicine at a large urban medical center. And so I have been working in both the medical and the psychiatric worlds for many years. And I can assure you whether a person comes in for bipolar disorder or for a heart attack or a stroke or intractable back pain, these are acute issues that are treated well in the short term, but we typically start people on a couple of medications and then discharge them. These medications help people tread water, but they don't heal the underlying condition. And I'm very interested in what it takes to heal the underlying condition so that people don't need to be on medications for the rest of their lives just treading water. That's, that's where my research, I think, is important. I traveled to the extreme edge of medicine to study these cases, and doing so illuminated what the center of healing really looks like for those of us who are just living our lives. And it's very different than just simply taking a medication. Medications can help, but it's not the whole story. I like that you brought that up. I have had an inkling of that kind of feeling that a medication is an after the fact. And right. It's not going to work its way down into the mind and find the synapses right. settings that have you in a, this kind of anguish right. or thought patterns that keep you in this form. And then right. kind of, obviously there's too much detail. So it's just kind yeah. of, it's like Febreze for uh, air, like smell or something like that. It kind right. of masks it, but it doesn't make sense. Yeah, yes, that's right. I, I think that, the illness is a message. It means that something is out of whack in your life that needs to be addressed. And um, maybe that's not the case in every illness, but in many illnesses, the illness is a sign of some kind of disharmony or something that's out of balance in your life. And it's just really helpful for those who find uh, it helpful to do so, to ask what is the message of this illness and what do I need to change in my life so that I don't need this illness any longer. Mm -hmm. One thing that I've thought of recently is the words mental health have been usurped by the population because if I say I have good mental health, it's almost like a misuse of the phrase. It doesn't count. It's a lot of it has gone on the end of having anxiety or some form of depression or right. it's like 98% of where that phrase comes up. But if you went in public and said, I have good mental health, there you'd have some confused people. Do you feel like that term is okay because it usually is for the the individual who has anxiety. Was it not branded clearly at the beginning? What are your thoughts on that term? Yeah, it's a good issue that you're raising because, um, for example, I believe that many people who are admitted to uh, a psychiatric hospital actually are admitted because they're sensitive individuals who have found it challenging to figure out how to live their life in a 
rough and tumble world. There's a lot of trauma in the world. There's a lot of trauma that's unacknowledged in people's lives that people need help understanding the relationship of that trauma to how they think about and experience themselves in the world and the negative destructive thinking that can come from that without the proper kind of help. And so people are often admitted to a psychiatric hospital, uh, not because of what's wrong with them, but because of what's right with them. And so our job, I believe, uh, should be to help people learn how to recognize what's right and valuable about who they are, and to realize that there's nothing wrong with them that cannot be fixed by what's great and wonderful about them, and to build a life on that foundation instead of this foundation that you're not good enough. When a person uses the word mental health, it's often associated with this deficit-based way of thinking that I'm not good enough, or if there's a problem with my mental health, it means that, that there's a problem with me, and that's not true. I think that we need a foundation in mental health that's built on what's right with people rather than what's missing with people. And so I'm very much um, a believer that we need to establish a different foundation for mental health and well-being where people don't have this kind of internal resistance to seeing a psychiatrist because it's going to be talking about what's wrong or missing with them. We need to help people recognize their value and achieve a level of well-being rather than fix some deficit. Um, I think psychiatry and psychology have made some errors in the past by reducing um, human problems of living to neurochemical defects that then you need to uh, think the whole solution is about taking a medication, for example. Or psychology and therapists have too often uh, talked about things as if this is a result of childhood deficits. And that's all about deficit-based ways of thinking. We need to have a way of thinking that builds on what's right and unique about each person. And that's a very different approach and goes in a very different direction. And it's more empowering rather than fighting uphill against this negative way of thinking. Yes, I would agree with that. I find it more inspiring to look at this thing worked or I did this thing or recently I've had momentum in this yes. category versus something that went wrong a year ago, five years ago, eight years ago, 20 years ago. Yeah, yeah, solution focused. Yes, exactly. I, I think we need to help people not live in the dark cave of the past where all that trauma and loss and difficulty and sometimes isolation was. We need to help people leave that dark cave and going back and talking forever about the dark cave can sometimes be a way of staying in that dark cave when the very thing you need to do is to leave that cave and develop a whole new life on a new foundation now that that sees and experiences yourself and the world very differently. So the point is to leave the dark cave. <laughs> leave the dark cave. <laughs> Recognize that there might be that one there, but depart from it because in the light <laughs> is where we are meant to. That's right. Yep. Right. One thing I had taken note of, I had a past guest, Dr. Doria Pino Rose. She's a foodist and also a neuroscientist and talk a lot about food and the value of it. You have a chapter called Eat to Heal in your book and makes me think, how relevant is your daily food intake in connection to your mental well-being? Is it more that you are putting in the efforts to set up the routine? Is it the actual specific foods? Do you see a connection between patients' food intake and how directly is that connected to their well-being? Yeah, I do. Uh, 
nutrition is one of the four pillars of healing and well-being that I talk about in Cured, and it's an important one. Uh, it's I, I watched lots of people use many different dietary approaches on the trajectory of their healing, but I came to understand it's not about food groups. It's not about counting calories. It's not about um, any particular one approach, but there's a lot of unity underneath the superficial differences of those dietary uh, changes that people were making. And so I began to realize over time, several issues are important when it comes to nutrition. Number one, uh, it's important to give up sugar, processed foods, and refined flours. I do believe, and there, the scientific evidence around this is becoming very persuasive, uh, that sugar and refined flours and processed foods are toxic to many human bodies. You know, 100 years ago, Americans ate on average about four pounds of sugar a year. Now, the average American eats more like 154 pounds of sugar a year. Our bodies have not had an upgrade to manage that kind of sugar content. It's just way over the top. And so many of the foods we buy in restaurants and grocery stores have hidden sugars in them. And so in the, the refined flours are so depleted of nutrition that they call it enriched flour because they add a few nutrients back in, but it doesn't even begin to provide the kind of nutrition that whole organic grains have originally. So, so um, I've, I've, I, pur I purposely tell the stories in Cured of people who uh, converted to a vegetarian diet and how they got better. I, I told the stories of keto diets and how people got better. But the common element underneath all of these dietary approaches is that people by and large eliminate processed foods, sugars, and refined flours. Now, it's also important to uh, realize that food is love. Food is community. Food is a lot of things to all of us. And the point is, at the end of the day, for your healing, you want to end up with more love and more community and more connection in your lives. And so, so people need to make very individual and creative decisions about how to improve their nutrition, but also in a way that deepens their relationships with those they care about because it's complicated to make nutritional changes if you're in a family where people are eating hot dogs and cheeseburgers with french fries every night and so that takes really creative solutions and some really thoughtful leadership about how to do that in a way that can deepen your connection and your experience with people and it's a very individual thing. It's also important to not make changes from a place of fear. I have taken care of people who have made deep nutritional changes, but they do it from a place of fear. And I think if you're making these changes from a place of fear, um, it's not going to be as effective as you would wish because you're trying to change the physiology of your body while you're still having all this cortisol and norepinephrine bathing your immune system and your body. And that just... Um, makes the uh, cells in your body that are trying to heal, it keeps them sluggish and working less efficiently and sometimes incorrectly. So that's important. I also think that it's important to make nutritional changes um, from the standpoint of trying to do some of, from a place of opportunity and focusing on the nutrition you're giving yourself rather than uh, focusing on what you're giving up. I think it's just harder for all of us to make changes if we're kind of going up the hill and we're very focused on, oh, I just really want that, that um, 
that cheeseburger tonight or or French fries tonight. And you know, I think that's not what's going to help. It just helps to focus on the nutrition that you're pouring into your body and try to feel that. And it's a it helps make that that shift easier. Mm -hmm. Are there any people that you look to as examples of what to do or they're setting good leadership for how people should eat properly or manage their well-being or are there any individuals you like to follow for their guidance in these categories yeah uh, like researchers that i trust mm -hmm. yeah that's a great question because i think a lot of the uh, guidance around uh, nutritional changes has actually been really mixed up. It's really tragic that so many of us as doctors or even nutritionists and nurses, we have been given some real miseducation around nutrition. And so the advice we give our patients is actually a mess. We as doctors are dying from the same lifestyle diseases that our patients are dying from because we don't understand nutrition and we were given bad information. And I could tell you stories about what I was taught and how upside down it was. And I think it's, um, it's a collusion of industry, which funds a lot of research and it funds a lot of the research that academics do. And then it also influences the lobbyists who then influence government policies around nutrition. And so it's been a collusion of industry and academics and government to give us a really misunderstanding of what genuine nutrition requires. So the people I've learned, and there's a long history, it's a big topic. I could tell you stories about the research that's now coming out showing the way um, industry purposefully uh, covered up the knowledge about how toxic lots of sugar can be to our bodies and turned it into an issue with low fat, for example, and had our whole culture thinking, oh, you got to make sure you keep low fat in your diet. And, and that was all a diversion from the real issue, which was this whole sugar thing. And that now that those, uh, those, uh, industry papers are coming out we're seeing what a big deal that is and so that's a big topic yeah it made me think of just the future connection because a future person i'll be speaking with it was an attorney who fought against dupont and uh something they did with chemicals right and yes that's similar where an industry kind of was like nope uh, no issue here and then you know almost right. 12 years later you see the story that oh it wasn't convenient to our business model at the time so Right. It's the same thing. These, they always seem to use the same, to, same playbook as big tobacco, right? I mean, it's a cover up and trying to divert attention to another area and, and all that. And I, I think there are, there are authors who are coming out with really good sound research that's not uh, industry influenced. I, T. Colin Campbell is really excellent on nutrition. His book, The China Study, I talk about and cured outstanding research really understands nutrition, has a PhD in nutrition and was raised on a farm, but had a radical change in his own understanding as uh, his research progressed. I think John Robbins has a really good view of nutrition. I think Michael Pollan has a good uh, understanding of nutrition. So the voices are starting to really develop where there's a view of nutrition that I think can be trusted. And hopefully we can more and more get a national discussion going on this stuff and really change the kinds of um, subsidies that we provide for reinforcing which kinds of foods are grown and that sort of thing. 
what would you describe as the main difference between, let's say, somebody in Iowa who is eating lots of lettuce and tomatoes and cucumbers and potatoes and is healthy and has a general idea of this is probably good for me as a person, but hasn't done extensive uh, research or larger scale understanding versus someone who has done a lot of research and senses all the details if they're not doing that much similar, but what is the key difference for society? Well, so let me make sure I'm getting your question right here. Um, so you're, you, so you've got a person in Iowa who's eating the food that's available at the local supermarket, but mostly eating vegetables, plant-based you're saying, mm -hmm. versus, and versus someone else who what? Uh, who uh, understand, basically it's, what is the difference between that person who is doing it without really understanding the broader scale of this is not good for me, these sugars are damaging, this is the science behind that. And then the person who has done extensive research to know the metabolic pathways that a sugar causes, and then they adjust their food intake after the fact, what is the different impact on society? Or which one is more, I guess, impactful to society? Let me answer that, and if I'm not understanting you correctly. It's kind of a confusing uh, question now that right. I think about it. Yeah, but but uh, let's let me take a stab at it, and you redirect me if I'm not getting mm -hmm. what your point is. Um, so you know, I think for one thing, not everybody has a Whole Foods down the street, or they don't. Not everybody has organic food available to them. One question I often get asked is, um, if I don't have a Whole Foods down the street, or if I don't have a lot of money, uh, can I still eat? with healthy nutrition. The truth is you can, you have to be more creative about it. It is certainly more difficult if you don't have organic produce available to you or if you have a limited income. And so, but, uh, but you know, people who are eating the fast food and lots of meat that's filled with chemicals and stress hormones and all that sort of thing, um, is also very expensive. So, you know, there's uh, most grocery stores, you can find uh, cans of beans that don't have lots of added chemicals, usually that don't have lots of added salt. Cans of beans, that's cheap, a very healthy source of pro protein that's easily integrated into uh, maybe different recipes than a person is using, but still there are some cookbooks coming out that have really tasty recipes uh, that do have, uh, for example, beans or brown rice or um, other common vegetables that do tend to be available in the supermarket. Now, I will say I have a bit of a personal story here uh, that I should say I, I uh, until recently never paid a lot of attention to whether my food is organic or not. I tend to eat out a lot. I'm very busy and all that. But uh, in the context of this pandemic where you can't just go down the street to Whole Foods and go to the salad bar and get make a salad every day for lunch, um, I had to change what I was doing. And so I decided I was going to up my game. I was going to go to um, make organic vegetable smoothies every day for lunch. And so that's what I started doing. started taking organic lettuce or kale, putting that with organic blueberries, organic banana, and some um, organic beet juice, um, 
and some uh, supplements like green vibrance, putting that all into a mixer and mixing it up in the head. That was my lunch. Well, I'm as a runner, I pay a lot of attention to my my heart rate on Fitbit, for example. And I was shocked after making that change within a week or 10 days, my heart rate dropped significantly from mid to low 50s into the upper 40s. And the only change I made in my life at that point was I switched from regular vegetables, non-organic at the whole food salad bar to organic vegetables um, that I made in a smoothie. So the only difference was I went organic. So that was quite surprising that that made that kind of tangible difference in my heart rate. And so either that means I'm getting nutri nutrients in the organic vegetables that I was not getting in the conventional vegetables, or I have some level of allergy to the glyphosate uh, pesticides that's in the conventional vegetables. So I don't know which it is, but I have become convinced I'm starting to look more into uh, how depleted um, our conventional vegetables are in terms of nutrients because of our, the way we do agriculture um, in the country and most of the world right now is we deplete our soils. We keep using the same um, crops every year. We keep um, depleting those soils instead of rebuilding them up adequately. And so we're depleting our vegetables over time of a lot of the vitamins and minerals. And so they're not as, uh, they're not as nutrient rich as they used to be. So I have switched over to organic as much as I can recently, not exclusively, but I try to do it whenever I can. And I also now am putting some supplements in my um, smoothies because I'm, I'm wanting to make up for even what the organic foods miss. And so, so that's a, a shift just in the last months that I've made. And I think it's an important one. It is cool when you look at something and you track it and then a month later you compare and you can see right. directly on the change versus having guesses, but never. Right. Right. A little bit confused. Right. Yep. Again, it's that personalized medicine, really looking at your unique situation and trying to get as much data as possible, you know, and, and we are, have more and more ways to get data on our unique bodies and situations that can be revelatory when we start understanding how to use it. Mm -hmm. One thing I always like to check, usually I check if there is a message you would have for all people of the planet, but in this case, do you have a message you would say to all those of the world who are wondering about their mental well-being or are not the most put together, what would you tell to those individuals? Yeah, so that's a big question. And especially during the pandemic, when so many people are isolated or struggling with situations with the loss and trauma of what the pandemic has forced on them, whether it's job loss or trying to educate their children at home or, or they have an been ill themselves or a, a, a loved one who's in a nursing home that they can't even see or visit. I mean, there's so many things. I think, I think I want people to know that they matter, you know, that they bring something important and good into the world and to not question that and to do the kind of work that helps you eliminate the false beliefs that you carry inside and do the work to strengthen the true 
empowering beliefs so that you can see and experience the value that you bring into the world. One of the most common things that people have said to me over the years in the context of this research is that it took an illness for them to wake up and realize that they needed to stop taking care of everyone else. They needed to stop responding to the perceived expectations of others and instead also pay attention to what creates life and well-being within them. And that can initially, I mean, I'm telling you, whether it's a medical patient or a psychiatric patient, they can feel like that's a selfish thing to begin doing, but it's not. It's, it's just that people need to know that they matter enough to pay attention to their own lives and to what puts a light in their eyes and that helps them come alive again. Because as my friend Gabriel Mate says, if you don't know how to say no, your body will eventually say no for you. And I think people often become so worn down. I, I view self-care like a bank account. If you don't keep putting deposits into your life of well-being, the kinds of things that really help you come alive, you will become spiritually, physically, emotionally bankrupt in a way that you will need to see a doctor, whether it's a psychiatrist or a medical doctor, because you'll just be worn down both body, mind, and spirit. And I think we all need to honor the dignity of who we are enough that we can put the things into our lives that allow us to feel whole and complete. And then you won't have to be like the person uh, who, uh, who was diagnosed with cancer and they actually experienced it as a relief because it's like, oh, so I don't have to be a lawyer like my dad wants me to be, or I'm finally free to be who I want to be, even though I only have six months to live. You know, so all of these things, it's just so important that we honor the dignity of who we are enough that we live our authentic life and not spend so much energy trying to take care of others. That was well said. And it was so well said that it reminded me that I forgot to mention at the beginning, you, know, you have given a TEDx talk and you have also been connected with Oprah Show and Dr. Oz as well. This yes. is a wonderful thing. You remind, remember these things when hearing in such a form that impacts you. That's the quality of a great communicator. Then you're like, oh, wait a minute. So you don't have to remember everything in life because the things that are true, they show up again and again. You don't yes. always have to. It's sort of like right. if it was really good thought, it'll come back. You know, yes. The point is to listen for the messages. Right. <laughs> This is a wonderful thing. We cannot top that. I would like to thank you for having been on this ep episode of the show and bringing forth great messages of well-being for the people out there, Dr. Jeffrey Rediger. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for the chance to speak. Glad to. And we are out.